From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy to welcome to the program today Dr. Juan Campos Crower. We're going to be talking today about diseases that can affect wild deer, and these can be ones that are actually really quite dangerous to their health, and we're going to learn about them on this episode. And this is a topic that we haven't had on the show before. So, uh, Dr. Campos Crower, thank you so much for, for being with me this afternoon here on the show today. Deer are kind of everywhere in our midst here in north central Florida, except for maybe the most urban areas. Is that right? Yes, actually, deer are everywhere. We we find them very often in urban areas as well. And thank you so much for inviting me to the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we're talking primarily about what? White-tailed deer? Or are there different species of deer that we see primarily in Florida? Yes. Uh, Florida has a good population of white-tailed deer. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, we're around 750,000 wild white-tailed deer here in Florida. Here in the University of Florida, I work for the Survey Health Research Initiative. It's a program that's supported at Florida's legislature, and we focus on deer diseases. I work mostly with farm white-tailed deer, but everything that we find can be extrapolated to wild, wild white-tailed deer as well. And the other thing is that Florida has a big number of uh, exotic deer as well. But we focus mostly on diseases that affect white-tailed deer. Oh, that's right. You know, I forgot that we have uh, the adorable key deer, uh, and I'd, I'd hate to think of anything uh, more sort of pressing on them and uh, hurting them because they're so vulnerable as it is. Uh, so I'll be sad to hear if any of the diseases we talk about today affect key deer. Yes, yes. Key deer is an endangered species. There's an estimated number of around 700 left. So it's very important, very important to conserve them. They can be very vulnerable to diseases. So uh, let's just get some background about deer as a, a species anyway. I imagine there's you know multiple species of deer as there are with uh, many other animals that kind of fall into a, a category like that. Uh, and, and we have a few, I guess, as you say, in Florida, white-tailed deer probably being the, the primary ones. And these are the ones, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor, that we see sometimes their eyes kind of glowing on the side of the roads at night as we drive by at, at dusk or maybe even early in the morning. Yes, those are, generally those are white-tailed deer. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, we, those of us who drive on the roads often kind of live in fear because you don't know what they're going to do and you're afraid they're kind of like going to run out in front of you. And, and this happens from time to time and, and there are unfortunate accidents with motorists. But um, these these deer, what is their, what's their life cycle like? Yeah, well, going back to what you were saying about driving and, and hitting deer, it's a huge, huge problem in the United States. Not too much here in Florida, but up north, it, it is a really big problem. And generally, uh, during the rut, so that's when the deer, so uh, white-tailed deer, they will uh, start reproducing certain specific times of year. So generally, here in Florida and most of the United States, it starts around end of October all the way up to the December, November, December. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because here in Florida, because of our climate, the reproductive season for white-tailed deer expands almost. Some areas of South Florida, they reproduce all year round. But more up north, it's more centralized around October, 
early December, end of December. And that's generally when those deer will be thinking about something else and when they decide to cross the roads without paying any attention. And so uh, accidents occur during that time uh, a lot. Uh, Occurrence is a lot higher during that time of year. Um, yeah, the white-tailed deer, are, like I said, they're very common. The population is very big here in Florida. Uh, so, I mean, are they mm-hmm. are they presumably native to Florida? I mean, are they native to large swaths of North America? Oh, they're native for all North America. There's lots of uh, subspecies of white-tailed deer, around 27, here in Florida. Actually, there's an interesting story here for Florida is that in the third, 1930s, uh, white-tailed deer were almost completely ex- extirpated from Florida, uh, with their numbers being very low. And only after they were protected that their numbers again bounced up and, and started increasing. So they're all over through the United States, most of the United States. And do they live long lives? I'll confess here that I am not somebody who's especially familiar with. I mean, I see them out, and, and you know, I've been pretty close even to deer because, um, as as you pointed out here at the top of the program, you know, these are these are critters that they'll come into neighborhoods, even in places where there's a lot of automobile traffic, and they are looking for food, presumably, right? And, and gosh, it wasn't just a couple of weeks ago that I was visiting uh, someone, and right there in the backyard in the late afternoon, early evening, two or three of these white-tailed deer come up looking for something to eat. And, yeah, I mean, they'll just be around. So they, I, I confess that I don't know a lot about them beyond just seeing them around. Are, do they live long lives? Yeah, in captivity, white-tailed deer, there's records of white-tailed deer living up to 20 years. In the wild, they generally don't reach that that age. They generally will succumb a little bit sooner because they're exposed to the environment and everything. But in captivity, up to 20 years. So they they live a relatively long life, um, for sure. And yet, uh, in addition to being hit by a car or maybe being hunted, which is something that is... Oh, and, and, and let me ask you about that, too, because there was a point at which you say that the population of deer had dwindled considerably. Uh, when when about did it begin to rebound? And, and, and it seems like now there's really le- less concern about the survival of white-tailed deer. Yes, in the in the late 50s, that's when they were starting to be protected, and that's when their population started rebounding here in Florida. And and now they are commonly sought by hunters, right? Yes. And the but that let me just ask you this: I mean, in, aside from anybody's uh, sort of uh, feelings about hunting in general, just from a purely kind of like scientific standpoint, does hunting pose any? threat right now to the survival of this as a species? Oh, no. Absolutely no. Absolutely no. It does not. With the numbers that we have, absolutely no. It's not not a threat at all. It actually is a good way of managing the population. Okay. So they can live to be, you know, quite old in captivity, but on average they, they live less just because, of course, you know, the thing's kind of the, the being a wild animal. You just don't live as long as you might in captivity. Uh, that's the case for, for some species. What risks, though, in the wild do they have that don't concern hunters or being hit by cars? Diseases, right? 
Absolutely, yes, diseases. And that's the whole uh, objective of the Survey Health Research Initiative program is to study these diseases specifically here in Florida and to better understand. There are really two uh, viruses that are called hemorrhagic, that, that produce hemorrhagic diseases that are very deadly for deer, not just here in Florida, but throughout the United, most of the United States now. And these two viruses are uh, orbiviruses. The first one is episodic hemorrhagic disease that's very deadly and affects white-tailed deer particularly very severely. And then we have another orbivirus that's very close related, that's a blue tongue virus that can also affect white-tailed deer. So those those two viruses are the big killers of white-tailed deer, not just in Florida, but most of the United States. And so we focus our study on those two viruses, but also they will get injured and they will get bacterial infections. We here in, in Florida, because of our climate, uh, we also see parasite infections. And so those are mostly, and then like I said, trauma, parasites, and viruses. So when you talk about hemorrhagic diseases, are these these are diseases that make these animals experience blood loss? Yes, yes. So the, the, this this uh, particular virus, the episodic hemorrhagic virus, for example, uh, affects the endothelial cells. So it will affect the lining of veins and arteries. So it will produce uh, bleeding, internal bleeding. Uh, that is very severe in some cases. There are there are three three generally there are, there divide there could the deer can be affected in three forms. The paracute, uh, which the animal sometimes doesn't even show symptoms, it just dies directly because the virus is very deadly in those cases. There's a acute where the animal will get sick, show some symptoms, and the animal can succumb after three or four days. And then there's a chronic where the animal will survive but will have major lesions that will affect them probably for life or for a long time. I have a lot of questions about about this disease, but let's maybe start here. When you're describing the three different kind of um, stages, yeah, stages or intensities of of this disease, yeah. and um, are is it possible to even determine how many animals are affected? Because we're talking here about uh, largely uh, today on the show wild deer. And the wild deer are living out in the forest or, you know, even near people. But, you know, if one's just lying in the woods somewhere, probably not too many people are overly concerned about what happened to it, right? Yes, yes. Actually, it's it's really challenging to work with deer because, as you know, deer are praised. So they have evolved <laughs> their whole to, to look healthy. So generally, uh, a wild deer... Even though it's very sick, if we approach or if it sense that there's a predator and they consider us predator generally, uh, they will look perfectly healthy. So it, sometimes it's a little bit tricky. And the other thing that makes it very challenging, especially with wild deer, is that when an animal feels sick because they're prey, they will not go out to the open field and and show that or die. They generally will search for the thickest, thickest part of the forest uh, to lay down or to suffer or to die. And that's why it's many times we think that wild deer are perfectly healthy, but in reality, they also get sick, and but we just don't see it because they 
have evolved to show themselves always as healthy and they hide when they're sick because they don't want to be found. Um, going back to your question, yes, the, this disease does kill thousands of deer throughout the country. There was a big outbreak of episodic hemorrhagic disease in 2013 and 14 that is estimated they killed 1.7% of the population of white-tailed deer. So that's a very big number of dead deer. That is an enormous number. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, just imagine, uh, imagine anything affecting so many individuals of a, a species, and that's really astounding. Um, now, the title of it, the name is episodic hemorrhagic disease. With the episodic, where, where does that come from? Is this kind of happen um, not annually, or does it happen um, on occasion? Yeah, so episodic comes from an epidemic in zoonotic animal. So it's an epidemic in animals. Oh, okay, okay. Uh-huh. So I, I just I sort of misunderstood the word. Yeah, okay. that's uh, where it comes from. And and one thing to make it clear, and so that people are not getting scared uh, on the radio hearing this uh, this uh, program, is that it's not a zoonotic disease. So this episodic hemorrhagic disease means that it only affects uh, white deer and other species, uh, but it does not it does not affect humans. Okay, and and I, do, I definitely want to ask you um, coming up later on the program about you know, the origins of it. But but let me ask you this too: you described the lining of the arteries or the veins and how they are affected by this disease. And what occurs to me is that in a species that has thick fur, that might be hard to even notice that there's something wrong with the animal, even if it's bleeding internally, because you're not seeing its skin directly, right? Yes. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this disease. So this this uh, episodic hemorrhagic disease is actually transmitted through vectors. So the vector that transmits this disease is a, a little tiny fly from the culicoids, cu- there you go. And people call them midges noceum here. These little tiny uh, uh, flies that feed on blood. They are everywhere. They will bite us as well, humans as well. But there are specific species that will transmit the disease. So this disease is transmitted through that little fly, through a vector. So when an animal is sick and then and uh, this little tiny fly takes a blood meal, it will fly off and take another blood meal from an animal. That's how it will inject the virus. Generally, the first thing that happens is that this virus will go into in the in the animal, and it will go and lay and generally in the surrounding lymph tissues or lymph nodes and that's where it will still start it will it will start reproducing once it start reproducing these uh, as you know uh, viruses need cells to reproduce so these viruses will go inside the cell they'll start reproducing when there's thousands or maybe millions of them they will give a signal these cells will burst and all those new viruses will start going through the circulatory system again affecting other lymph nodes but then starting to affect other organs when they start going to other organs, and they have really high affinity to endothelial cells. So those are, like I said, the cells, the lining of artery and veins, but other organs as well. They'll start reproducing. Same thing again. They start reproducing these cells. And imagine that you have these viruses infecting the layers of your veins. They'll start reproducing. When the moment comes, 
they'll burst the cells and they'll start going through the circulatory system, but that vein, that artery, that the capillary is affected. So that's where the bleeding occurs. So yes, they have you know thick fur, but you can generally because of that you will see that the animal, when the especially when the viruses are in the circulating in the blood, the animal will have really high fever. You will see that it starts to swallow. Generally, one of the symptoms is that the neck, the head will swallow. Uh, this other virus that's called blue tongue that's very closely related, well, very close to, similar to episodic hemorrhagic disease, is called blue tongue because of that the tongue will swallow and because of all the bleeding, the blood, the tongue will turn cyanotic, so it will turn blue color, and that's where the name of that virus comes in. So episodic uh, hemorrhagic disease does something similar. Generally, that does not... Uh, the main characteristics, but the animal will start swelling. It's not unusual for them to see blood discharge through their nose or through their rectum. And internally, the animal could be bleeding in many organs as well. I see a lot of uh, lungs that are the bleeding lungs, hemorrhages uh, uh, in lungs, and other organs as well. From the time that the fly has bitten this deer and gotten that virus into the deer's body, about how long does the deer have before it's going to experience symptoms or clinical signs? Around three to seven days. It varies It varies uh, between animals, but generally it's around three to seven days before the animal starts showing symptoms. And sometimes after the seven days, if the animal had no resistance or have never been exposed to the virus before, uh, that animal can you know, and die in 30 hours, in 12 hours, 8 to 33, 6 hours, if it's the paracute uh, case. And the fly that you're talking about is the vector. Is that the only vector? I mean, what about mosquitoes, for instance, or do they just can't transmit it? There have been research done where other strains of EHD have been found in mosquitoes, but it's, it has never been proved that they're infect, they, they can transmit it. This virus is very well adapted to these colico flies, so they reproduce under gut linings of, the, of these flies. And that's that's why they can transmit it. There's actually one of the interesting things that we have found here through the Survey Health Research Initiative is that generally there's one species of fly. The, it's called Culicoides sonorensis. That's the one that has been for a long time identified as the vector. Well, it turns out that here in Florida, we have the disease, we have big outbreaks, but Soronensis, which is the vector, the, the well-known vector, is not very common here in Florida. So one of the things that we started doing was collecting insects. So we in in this program, we have a very interdisciplinary team. So there's veterinarians, there's entomologists, virologists, biologists, and we all work together. And the entomologist team were collecting these flies when we had outbreaks to try to identify what other vectors, what other culico flies weren't transmitting the disease. And we were actually able to to prove that Culicoid uh, Stellifer uh, and Venustus are two other vectors here in Florida, and we were able to find that. So that's also very important because uh, those flies are the key uh, to stop the transmission because they need to be present for the disease to continue. Um, because of Florida weather, again, these flies tend to be around most of the year. 
up north in the United States, where there are also lots of cases of episodic hemorrhagic disease, there's very specific times of year, which is generally late summer, early early fall, when these flies are present because they have frost and, and the temperature gets really cold, kills off most of those flies. But here in Florida, that doesn't happen very often. So uh, those flies are mostly around all year round. Uh, even though we do see uh, higher higher peaks and outbreaks of the disease, uh, around starting around late July, so we're about soon. We're going to be in episodic hemorrhagic disease <laughs> season. Uh, so late July, all the way up to November, early December. That's when we see most of the cases here in Florida. Oh, well, I feel like we're just scratching the surface on this topic. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today is Dr. Juan Campos Crower, and we're going to be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill, and my guest today from the University oh, from the University of Florida, actually, as part of the Survey Health Research Initiative, is Dr. Juan Campos Crower, and we're talking today about diseases that affect deer in Florida and elsewhere as well. But since we're here in Florida, we'll talk about that. And we left off, Doctor. We had been discussing primarily uh, the episodic hemorrhagic disease, and you had alluded to the blue tongue virus. And these are these are both viruses. So presumably, there is not much in the way of uh, a cure once an animal is experiencing these and the nature of the transmission here through these vectors that are, you know, insects um, must mean that the, the blue tongue virus, does it, does it work the same way? Is it a similar kind of transmission process? Yes, yes, yes. So episodic hemorrhagic disease and blue tongue virus are very, are, are both, they both are orbiviruses, very close related. Um, yes, for blue tongue, it also needs a vector, exactly as episodic hemorrhagic disease. But in the case of blue tongue virus, it has a specific culicoid fly again that is called culicoid insignis. That's the one that will transmit a blue tongue virus to different deer and other species as well. Um, I just wanted to mention that uh, going back to episodic disease and blue tongue viruses, uh, episodic hemorrhagic disease, there's actually 10 different uh, serotypes throughout the world. And here in the United States, we have three serotypes that are present that affect deer, serotype 1, 2, and 6. And for the blue tongue viruses, also there's an estimated of 29 different serotypes throughout the world. And here in Florida, we have uh, detected uh, five. So serotype 2, 10, 11, 13, and 17. Uh, and okay, so that gives that gives researchers kind of a, a lot to kind of go on. But when we talk about the way that this disease presents, you mentioned that the blue tongue virus. I mean, it's got a pretty evocative name there. With the idea being what that the swelling in this deer's tongue uh, must get pretty severe, and it and it has a a blue hue to it, and that must make it hard for the deer to swallow and eat and so forth. Um, what are what are some of the health uh, complications or 
um, <clears throat> what are the clinical signs? How deadly is this for a deer? Yeah, blue tongue virus can be very deadly for deer uh, as well. Um, it has a really high it, morbidity, so many animals can get sick and a re- high percentage of mortality. Blue tongue virus, is done, is, on the other hand, also affects sheep. Blue tongue virus can affect sheep very severely and other species as well. Cattle can also get it. Generally, it's not as severe as in white-tailed deer, uh, but they can also get sick. So going back to some of uh, of the symptoms, this it, generally the blue tongue is a consequence of many other things that are happening in the, in the deer body. So remember when I was talking about the bleeding and their liking, so uh, affecting other organs. This virus will also affect the lungs and, of course, the circulatory system. And because the lung has lots of veins and arteries and capillary, they get affected severely, so that they will have an edema, a lung edema, and there could be hemorrhage in the lung as well. That does two things. One is that the animal can't breathe very well, so the interchange between oxygen and CO2 is, is, is challenged. So that's why the tongue will also turn dark because the animal is not getting all the oxygen that it needs other than the congestion and the hemorrhage as well. One of the characteristics of this virus is also that they will also produce ulcers, ulcers and lesions in the tongue. It's not unusual to see big ulcers in the tongue, in the lips, in the mouth. They will also produce internal ulcers in the esophagus in the stomach, so deer have four stomachs. One of them is the rumen, is the big one. That one will also give big ulcers, and also the amomasum, which is the true stomach of the of the deer, that's more similar to monogastrics, will also get ulcers. So this animal can be bleeding from those ulcers, or in the case of, let's say, in the case that it's a chronic disease, so the animal is able to kind of survive and go through the disease, these ulcers will keep affecting that animal for a long time. So sometimes after three, four weeks, a month later that the animal had the disease, was able to to recover, uh, but not fully because of those ulcers. So that animal will still be thin, will still be losing weight, even though it's receiving good feeding and everything is fine. Those animals still feel affected. It will also affect the the hoods. It will uh, sometimes the the hoof will stop stop growing. In severe cases, they can fall off. So, it's it's really challenging. And like you said, these are two virus diseases. So there's no specific treatment for them. It's, it's the treatment is symptomatic. So if the animal has fever, we will fight the fever. We will try to get the congestion down. We will try to get fluids, vitamins. And one thing that's very important is that. Again, because the the lung and many organs are being affected, there's a chance for the animal to get secondary bacterial infections, which can also be very deadly because the animal's already suffering, their immune system is already being stretched or or weakened, and that's when bacteria will start to grow, and that could be a second problem. So generally, uh, antibiotics are also uh, needed for animals, but it's it treated symptomatic depending on what what the symptoms are. Oh well, and not to mention that I mean an animal with ulcers in its mouth and on its tongue that's got to be very uncomfortable for these animals. Oh yes, for sure, for sure. Like I said, many animals if if they manage to recover, they they still 
they suffer and go through a long period of time to fully recover. Now, we know that a virus can't necessarily be readily cured. Is there any chance that there could ever be a vaccine to prevent infection? Yes, yes. Actually, that's one of the things that we've been working really hard in here in, in, the, in the Survey Health Research Initiative team is to be able to develop a vaccine. Now, we are... We don't have all the equipment and lab to be able to develop vaccines, but we have been working with vaccine producing companies so that providing them information. So one of the things that we have done here in, in this program is that we have, we have a service that we provide that, and like I said, this is focused mostly on deer farms, and that anybody that has a deer farm or a preserve here in Florida that has a deer, white-tailed deer that die, they can give us a call to the Survey Health Research Initiative, and we will go out to their field and do a field necropsy, collect samples, and hopefully tell that farmer what killed his deer, if it was episodic hemorrhagic disease or if it was blue tongue, so that way they can move fast and try to prevent it from spreading or any other disease. But through that, we have been able to collect lots of samples and, and, and be able to identify the different serotypes that we have here in Florida. We were able to fully sequence the genome of these viruses, and that information we share with vaccine companies so that they can produce a vaccine. Uh, we Right now, we have a new vaccine that has been produced that's out there that covers two of the serotypes. So it covers serotype 2 and serotype 6. It's still an experimental disease, but it has been approved by the Department of Agriculture for its use throughout the country. And we are actually very proud of that vaccine because it, we know that it has information, detailed information from cases from in the different strains from here from Florida. So we know that it's going to be hopefully very effective here in Florida. What about pest control? Uh, are there ways to sort of mitigate the effects of this disease, especially in farms or places where you know people are have a number of deer to just keep the insects themselves away. Yes, yes, yes. So there's several several ways. One is okay with the vaccine. Try to prevent. It. Now, using vaccines in deer is not like using vaccines. Working with deer is very different than working with cattle, sheep, or other livestock because deer are very still very very wild. So it's challenging even to give them the vaccine. But and turning out the other step is trying to reduce the number of insects. There's many suggestions. One is trying to, to spray, but that's not highly recommended. It's not very efficient because there's so many of these flies all throughout. You will have to cover an immense area. And the thing is that you could be killing the bad uh, colicoids and also killing other insects. And, they, and, and the worst thing is that they will get resistant to these products. So it is very challenging. The other thing that can be done is these most of these colicoids have specific areas that they like to reproduce. So these little tiny flies will take a blood meal and immediately, uh, generally the one that takes the blood meal is a female that has already been fertilized. And as soon as she has that blood meal, she'll bite a few other animals. And then once she's full, she'll go down and search a place where she can lay her eggs, and then the larva will start growing. Generally, those areas are uh, near 
muddy areas near streams, ponds, places like that are generally, or areas that have a lot of manure or something like uh, uh, organic material, that's where they would like to lay those eggs. And reducing those areas or make you know covering them or or cleaning them often, that can reduce the number. Now the thing is there's lots of different species of culicoids out there and it's always very challenging to whatever you're doing to mitigate them, it's focusing exactly on them. So we're still learning. There's still a lot of learn to do, to, uh, I mean, studies to do to specifically know what to do and where to aim to reduce the numbers. But that, yes, for sure, that's one step, reducing the number, reducing the chance that these animals are being bitten by these little flies is very important as well. Backing up a little bit, you mentioned that farmers who have deer might let you know if they've got an animal that they suspect is infected or has died, and, and there can be a necropsy done to confirm whether or not it was a hemorrhagic disease or a blue tongue virus and so forth. I wonder, is is there a concern that should there be a confirmed infection in a group of deer in any one particular area that having that one infected animal there just increases the likelihood that one of these vector flies will then be spreading the disease to other nearby deer just by virtue of the proximity? Yes, yes, yes. That's, that could be, that's a risk. And like I said, these flies, in, in specific in certain times of year, they're everywhere. So really, we have also done antibodies and, and looking at uh, exposure of deer. And deers are exposed year-round to these flies. So it's not one fly that will fly and, 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 and bite this deer and then will move on. There's thousands of them. And generally, deer are exposed all the time. So it, it's really, really challenging. But the, the risk of one fly, for example, finding an animal, in, if you have the animals in a pen, it's always a good idea to try to see if you can move that animal that you know is sick just to prevent from a fly coming in, finding other animals close by. Um, same thing happens with wild deer. The wild deer will also be affected. They're exposed to these viruses all the time. Uh, but they can move a little bit free, more freely so they can search areas where there's not too many of these flies biting them. I should have asked this earlier, but how long have these diseases been identified and how long have they been a scourge for the deer in our midst? Yeah, these flies were actually it's called, what's called disease X in the 50s. And it wasn't until like the late 60s when it was a it then the virus was actually typed and identified. So it's been around. It's probably there have been anecdotal uh, reports of die-off. So we believe that these, this this disease specifically episodic hemorrhagic has been around for a long time already. Something really interesting that also happens with these viruses, and now that we had COVID and we learn of all these new strains and things coming out, something interesting happened here in in the United States is that. Before 2006, we only thought we had serotype 1 and 2 of the episodic hemorrhagic disease. And in 2006, there was a big outbreak, and it was discovered that this new strain, serotype 6, that's now very much common and affects lots of deer now, was a case of recombination, reassortment, sorry, of 
serotype 2 with an exotic uh, serotype from from somewhere uh, of a foreign country somewhere else so they can also reassort so uh, they can that's why it's very important uh, to monitor and always be checking we have actually recently published an article where we found a reassortment again of one of the serotypes specifically serotype 6 here in Florida uh, we don't know yet how that will affect, but this was a big outbreak, and we found that it would, and the ca it was a case of a reassortment again. So there's always chance of new things showing up and 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 coming into the country. Well, we still have a lot to talk about on this program. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT FM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest is Dr. Juan Campos Crow, and we're talking about diseases that affect deer, and we're going to take another short break, and we'll be back right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida and the Survey Health Research Initiative is Dr. Juan Campos Crown. We're talking today about diseases that affect deer here in Florida, but elsewhere as well. And I wonder, doctor, if we can discuss some of the bacteria and parasites that can adversely affect the health of deer, uh, because I'm sure that there's probably no shortage of those either. I mean, especially, you know, when deer, deer are famous for a couple things. One, uh, being scary to motorists, but also the bad reputation they have as being hosts for ticks that can cause Lyme disease. Um, so if, you know, ticks are making a home on deer, then surely other kinds of parasites and critters are making deer's lives unpleasant as well. Yes, 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 for sure. For sure. Deer can have many things, so it's always important, especially if you're a hunter and you're very close exposed to deer, generally after the animal has died, those ticks will like to move around and you can you can get one. So it's always important to be on uh, lookout for ticks. It, Generally, it's not a big problem for for the deer. Uh, ticks are not, unless the infestation is really, really high, it's not too much of a problem for them. But there are other parasites that can be problematic for deer. There's uh, one parasite that we have been uh, uh, working on and we have detected. It's called Iamoncus contortus. It's a little, to, to say it in simple words, like a little blood-sucking worm that will that will, uh, it, it will attach itself to the stomach of the deer and it will feed on blood. And those deer, if they have a really high infestation, they can uh, become anemic and it can be a problem. What, what makes this parasite important is that this parasite also affects many other livestock, uh, sheep, goats, cattle. Actually, it's a big problem in sheep and goats here in Florida. And But this parasite has been shown to start in becoming resistant to many dewormers. So that's why it's it's an important parasite. And, and then on the other hand, talking about bacteria, yes, deer do get bacterial infections. We see, generally see two times of year where we see a lot of bacterial infection. One is we see a lot of bacterial infections in young deer. It, now it's fawn season. We're starting fall season, even though in wild deer, fawn season can extend a lot more. But 
generally May all the way up to early August is fawn season. We see a lot of young deer getting uh, bacterial infections. And we also see another peak in bacterial infections is during the rot. Like remember I said, during the reproductive season of the deer, that's because bugs will be fighting. They can get injured. And also a little bit before that, when the bugs, their antlers still have volvets, those volvets can get infected as well, and they will have but to severe, they can have severe bacterial infections as well. How are deer that are experiencing bacterial infections identified? I mean, how do how do you how do researchers even know that these deers are infected? They exhibit some sort of clinical signs. Yes, yes. Generally, if it's if if they're if fawns, young deer. If, the most common thing that we that we will see is a GI bacterial infection. So we will see diarrhea, and and in older adult animals, we will see, like I said, more bacterial infections that are related to trauma. So we will see a very an infected wound with an abscess or something like that. Or we will also see sometimes deer are very it's sensitive to lung infections. So that we will see a lot of pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia in deer as well. Now, if you find a deer that is experiencing some sort of bacterial infection that you can identify, are there courses of treatment? Are antibiotics effective? Yes, yes. Antibiotics can be, can be, can be used and it's recommended if the deer has a bacterial pneumonia, for example. One of the things that make the treating deer challenging is that very few drugs are actually approved directly for deer. So it's generally the dose is extrapolated from other livestock to deer. And one of the things is that everything that is used in deer is off-label. So there has to be a specific valid uh, client-veterinarian relation for a veterinarian to give them or allow them or suggest them to use a specific antibiotic, for example, on a deer. If they're wild deer, of course, treatment is very, very challenging and practically impossible unless somehow you have the hands on that animal. But generally, that's the the case for white-tailed deer. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this. Are are deer so dissimilar from an animal like a horse, an animal which is very well studied and understood and many different medications exist for the treatment of different diseases in horses, are they just so dissimilar that the same medications are not practical to be used between them? Uh, no, no, no. They're not really. It's not that they're very dissimilar. It's just that, the, for example, if we think about deer, treating deer and everything just pretty much started uh, with deer farming, which has probably 200 years old. It's 200 years old when horse raising <laughs> goes back to, you know, thousands of years back. So uh, what I want to say with that is, yes, we're still learning. We're still learning. And the other thing is that the, the numbers of uh, people treating deer is not as high as the numbers of horses and cattle and other livestock being treated. So generally, really to be able to certify a specific antibiotic and label it specifically for white-tailed deer, you will have to do a big research and sometimes the numbers just don't reach the, the you know, perfect, uh, I would say, rollback or the perfect uh, 
amount for companies to invest in those yeah, researches. I, I, I see what you mean. Now, in the little bit of time that we have left, Doctor, I wonder, where do you see things in, say, 10 years' time? Will the Will these diseases, particularly the the two viruses we were talking about earlier, will they have increased in their uh, deadliness, or will courses of treatment and mitigation factors have reduced the mortality from these diseases? Well, really, now that we have a, an experimental vaccine out in the market uh, that's available for for it to be used in white-tailed deer and elk as well. And other, uh, I think there's a way that we can prevent these diseases. Like I said, it's very challenging to be able to uh, give these vaccines to deer because it's the way deer are managed, are it's very different than very regular tame livestock. And also giving these vaccines to wild animals is very, very difficult. But we have the tools. That's one thing. And the other thing is that by do, by monitoring very heavily and really understanding what serotypes we have, what's happening, and being able to identify, for example, new reassortments or new outbreaks, it's very important to prevent and to try to reduce the numbers. But really, uh, I think that you will be hearing more about episodic hemorrhagic disease and blue tongue in the future because of climate change. Now that, uh, for example, last year there was a big outbreak in North Dakota where it's very cold and generally outbreaks were very limited in those areas. With climate change, if the, if the climate keeps getting warmer, these little flies will have higher chances of surviving for longer time up north, so it will probably be expanding. One of the other things that I want to say that makes this episodic myosis and blue tongue uh, gives the capacity for them to spread is we have seen that when we have big hurricanes here in Florida, generally a few weeks after we see outbreaks, and we really believe that uh, these big storms and hurricanes also move these vectors throughout the country or wherever they're going. So there's always a chance that they can move up north, that the new things can come from south. Uh, so I think you will hear, still be hearing about episodic hemorrhagic even though we have good tools now that we can use to try to reduce the the severity of any outbreak. Well, I wish I wish it were uh, more unambiguously positive news in the future, <laughs> but uh, I guess it's it's going to be mixed. Well. Uh, let me just say uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kamskrab, because this is something that I knew nothing about before this afternoon, and I feel like I've learned a lot, and I bet our listeners have too. So I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Juan Campos-Crower is from the University of Florida in the Survey Health Research Initiative. I want to thank you for listening, and thank you to Sarah Carey for her help with the program and the folks over there at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm Dana Hill. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Mm-hmm.